You've always made us feel at home here, and it's been easy to be with you. Not just easy, but a very happy time to be with you these last weeks again, and to renew friendships and fellowship from, from years past. It's good to see Jay and Kathy on the screen. I remember Jay from his seminary days, because I was pastoring at North Suburban at that time, just down the road from the... Uh, from the seminary, we had opportunity to see a lot of the young students, and now to see Jay at that time in his life when he is, uh, has emerged as a leader in Free Church Missions and to see the role that he's taken, it's very encouraging to my heart. By the way, he's still praying for Pastor Jeff. He's going to be back next Sunday, and uh, but he's going to be excited to be with you, and I know you'll be excited to see him again. I want to take a moment. We've been doing a lot of praying for this morning, but I want to pray for Pastor Jeff. I invite you just to bow with me and uh, pray with me just for a moment of, uh, in silence, if you will, lift your hearts on behalf of Pastor Jeff, Kami, and Jay, and just pray for their return home and their re-engagement in ministry here. Lift them up, will you? Father God, I thank you that this congregation has understood the value of providing a season of refreshment for their pastor and his family. We pray that you will bring Pastor Jeff back to them refreshed, recommissioned, re-energized, reaffirmed in your calling on his life, rejoicing in the gospel and the privilege of proclaiming it, retooled for future ministry, renewed in your spirit, ready for every good work that you have for him and for this congregation in the days ahead. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've enjoyed um, following Dr. Luke as he has uh, led us on the path that Christ was taking as he turned at that critical moment in his ministry and faced toward Calvary in a new way, in a, in a more resolved and resolute way. And that's what we've been looking at. What were the themes? What were the, what were the stories? What were the events? What were the, the passions that Christ was experiencing as he began to face more directly into the cross? And we're going to pick up some more of that today. An unusual passage to preach from, particularly as I close my time with you, but I pray God will use it in a, perhaps a unique way as we consider together uh, this passage from Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 49 and completing, going down through verse 56. Luke writes, I have come to bring fire to the earth, and I wish that my task were already completed. There is a terrible baptism ahead of me, and I am under a heavy burden until it's accomplished. Do you think I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I've come to bring strife and division. From now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or the other way around. There will be a division between father and son, mother and daughter, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Then Jesus turned to the crowd and said, when you see clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, here comes a shower, and you're right. 
when the south wind blows, you say, today will be a scorcher. And it is. You hypocrites. You know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but you cannot interpret these present times. 1948. In 1948, professional baseball welcomed the first black pitcher to the American League. His name was Satchel Paige, and uh, that year he led the Cleveland Indians to a victory in the World Series. Page would continue to play professional baseball for at least 17 more years. He finally retired. Mind you, he retired from professional baseball at age 59. Unheard of in professional sports. Because he came up through the Negro Leagues, he, his assortment of pitches was not the usual assortment of pitches. Unlike other professional pitchers, he knew nothing about curves and sliders, sinkers, fastballs, knuckleballs. When he was asked by sports writers how he had worked his way through a particularly difficult situation in the game, uh, he would simply reply that he had thrown some really thoughtful stuff. Growing up a Cleveland Indians, now Cleveland Guardians, I guess, right? But in those days, Cleveland Indians fan in the 40s and 50s, uh, this story about Satchel Paige and his thoughtful stuff takes me back to my, my early years in Ohio. But it also takes me back, interestingly enough, to a seminary course uh, during my second year at Trinity. It was during that course that Dr. Walter Liefeld first introduced me to what is known as the hard sayings of Jesus. These are teachings of Christ that are sometimes hard to understand, but are always hard to incorporate into our everyday living. And these teachings, known as Jesus' hard sayings, might also be referred to as his thoughtful stuff. First, because they require serious thought and study to rightly understand them. And second, because, because applying them to our everyday lives is even more difficult. In his book entitled, The Hard Sayings of Jesus, F.F. F. Bruce writes the following. For the Western world today, the hardness of many of Jesus' sayings is all the greater because we live in a different culture from that in which they were uttered. And we speak a different language from his. He appears to have spoken Aramaic for the most part. But with few exceptions, his Aramaic words have not been preserved. His words have come down to us in a translation, and that translation, the Greek of the Gospels, has to be retranslated into our own language. But when the linguistic problems have been resolved as far as possible, and we are confronted by his words in what is called a dynamically equivalent version, that is a version which aims at producing the same effect in us as the original words produced in their original hearers, the removal of one sort of difficulty may result in the raising of another. He goes on to write, Mark Twain spoke for, for many of us when he said that the things in the Bible that bothered him were not those that he didn't understand, but those that he did understand. This is particularly true of the sayings of Jesus. The better we understand them, the harder they are to take. Perhaps, similarly, 
This is why some religious folks show such hostility to modern versions of the Bible. These versions make the meaning plain, and it's the plain meaning that's unacceptable. In our text for today, we're confronted with two hard sayings of Jesus. Hard sayings, both of which require a thoughtful, a thoughtful people to hear them. The first of these two hard sayings appears in verse 49. I have come to bring fire to earth. You say, what in the world can Jesus possibly mean by that statement? A quick survey of the Old Testament prophets will demonstrate that time and time again this image of fire was used for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was to speak of God's coming judgment. But you say, could that possibly be what Jesus has in mind when he declares, I have come to bring fire on the earth? Isn't this the same Jesus of whom John wrote in chapter 3 and verse 17 of his gospel, God did not send his son into the world to condemn, to judge the world, but to save it. And again, John writes in chapter 12, verse 47, the words of Jesus himself when he said, I have come to save the world and not to judge it. So then, can Jesus actually mean that he brought judgment on the earth? We know from Scripture that one day at the end of time, Jesus will judge all mankind. In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 5 and verse 22, Jesus says that not even the Father will judge, but the Father has given all judgment to him, the Son. One day, he will judge all mankind. In fact, the Scriptures speak of three distinct judgments, the judgment of believers, or the assessment, the evaluation of the work of believers, the judgment of the nations, and the judgment of all unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. In 2 Timothy 4.1, we read, Jesus will someday judge the living and the dead when he appears to set up his kingdom. But that can hardly be the judgment Jesus is referring to as he approaches the cross, can it? I mean, surely the cross was, was the means of our salvation, not our judgment. So what then does the cross of Jesus Christ have to do with God's judgment? Leon Morris explains it as follows. He says, Jesus is saying that God's plan for man is a salvation that involves judgment. But it is a judgment, he writes, that the Messiah, Jesus, will bear for others, not one that he will inflict on them. You know, as Jesus hung on the cross, as he hung on the cross, Bearing the sin of mankind, the judgment of God fell like fire on the Christ. The prophet Isaiah had spoken of it many hundreds of years before in Isaiah 53 when he said, We thought his troubles were punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. The Lord laid on him the guilt and sin of us all. That's the fire. The judgment that Jesus brought with him at his first advent. The wrath, the judgment of God against all the sin of all mankind over all the ages. 
but he didn't bring it with the intent of laying it at our feet. Instead, he brought it in order that we might, he might bear it on the cross in our place and receive in his own person, his own body, the fire, the judgment of God due for each and every one of us. You see, what was the result of all that? What was the result of Christ going to the cross to bear, to bear the sin for you and me? To feel the fire of God's wrath. An anonymous writer expressed it well in the following words. He writes, in the forest fire, there is one place of peace where the flames cannot reach. It is the place where the fire has already burned itself out. Those who see this and go there find peace. And that is what Calvary means. For it's the place where the fire of God's judgment burned against sin until it had burned itself completely out. And there is therefore now no condemnation, no judgment for those who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. Here in Luke 12, as elsewhere, Jesus refers to this event in his life, the cross, as a terrible baptism. It's interesting that he often refers to his death as a baptism, and he does it in this passage as well. He calls it a terrible baptism. That is a full and public identification with our sin and with God's judgment against it. You see, that's what a baptism is. It's, it's a, a full and public identification with something or someone. And Jesus says, I'm going to be baptized with a full identification, in a full identification with your sin. I'm going to take every bit of it on me. And I'm going to take the whole of God's judgment against me. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to fully identify with God's plan for salvation. And then he adds that the knowledge of this impending judgment of God was such a heavy burden. And he uses a word that comes across in most of our translations as the word a constraint. It's such a heavy constraint that he carried it with him at all times until it was to be accomplished. Sometimes we wonder what Jesus' thoughts about the cross might have been in the days, in the period of ministry before those last days. Luke tells us here that Jesus says it was ever before him. It was a constant constraint. He turned no corner, walked down no street, de de delivered no message, apart from the fact that the cross was the focus of his life. He was constrained by it in all he did. It was the purpose for which he came. Thank God the, uh, the fire Jesus brought to earth at his first advent was not a fire intended for us, but rather a fire that he would endure in his own person. The one who knew no sin would bear the full punishment of God on our behalf. Nor was this an afterthought, um, a correction to a heavenly plan gone awry. Max Lucado writes, the journey to Jerusalem didn't begin in Jericho, which is, by the way, where we began our study in Luke. It didn't begin in Jericho when Jesus turned and faced toward the cross. It didn't begin in Galilee. He says it didn't begin in Nazareth. It didn't even begin in Bethlehem. The journey to the cross began long before 
as the echo of the crunching of the fruit was still sounding in the garden, Jesus was leaving for Calvary. What a beautiful image. And I submit to you that this, this gospel that we preach is thoughtful stuff. And it is gracious stuff. But we would do well to remember that this same Jesus who came to earth once will come again. And scripture is clear that this time he will come as judge. To judge the quick and the dead. And each and every man will be judged according to his deeds done in the flesh. On the heels of this hard saying of Jesus, he now turns to a second hard or tough, thoughtful saying that he shares with the people. And it was this in verse 50. He says to them, do you think I came to bring peace to the earth? Now, if he'd stopped right there, what do you think his disciples would have said? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We think you came to bring peace. Now, let's see why they might have thought that. But Jesus says, no, I've come to bring strife and division. Matthew says in his gospel that Jesus used the word a sword. I've come to bring a sword. Once again in his book, The Hard Sayings of Jesus, F.F. Bruce reminds us why this was such a hard saying for Jesus' followers uh, to grasp, to understand and apply. He writes, this is a hard saying for all who remember the message of the angels when Jesus came. Remember what that was? Glory to God in the heavens, highest heavens, and on earth, Peace, goodwill among men. Bruce continues, one thing is certain. Jesus did not advocate conflict. He taught his followers to offer no resistance or retaliation when they were attacked or ill-treated. Blessed are the peacemakers, he said. They shall be called sons of God. When he paid his last visit to Jerusalem, you may recall that the message which he brought concerned Things that make for peace. And the message which his followers proclaimed in his name following, following the death and resurrection of Christ was called what? It was called the gospel of peace. So how is it that as his days on earth came to an end and Calvary loomed ever larger before him, he would turn to his inner circle of followers and to the multitudes and he would announce... Do you think I've come to bring peace to the earth? No. I've come to bring strife and division. As difficult as this saying appears to be on first reading, nearly every New Testament scholar I could find agrees that the solution to it is given by Christ's words, his words that immediately follow those words. Verses 52 and 53, Jesus says, by way of explanation, from now on, families will be split apart, three in favor of me and two against, or the other way around. There will be a division between father and son, mother and daughter, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law. Based on that explanation of this statement that he didn't come to bring peace but conflict and division, it seems apparent, apparent that Jesus is talking about the result of his coming rather than the intention of his coming. Christ's own earthly family is a good example of this. One would hardly argue that it was Jesus' purpose to divide his family, and yet it appears that that's exactly what the result was of his coming. 
Mark 3.21 tells us that, that a number of his family came on one occasion at least to tear him away from the crowds because they said he's beside himself. He's gone a lit, little wacky. He's lost it. Yeah, this, this brother of ours, this Jesus, we've got we to save him from himself. And they came to tear him away and care for him. Maybe put him somewhere for a few weeks until he got straightened out. John chapter 7, verse 5, we read that even his brothers didn't believe in him. And yet we read in the book of Acts that some of his brothers actually were to become leaders in the church, the early first century church. Undoubtedly, there are some here this morning, somebody, somebody's here this morning, who are from families divided by the person of Christ. If not your immediate family, then perhaps, and in most cases, most of our cases, in our extended families. And while for most of us this is a matter of um, inconvenience and awkwardness at most, maybe a, an occasion for sadness and even a little strife, for some others it may be a matter of open conflict. I would just share with you that I have yet to pastor a single church where there were not families literally at war over the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Well, there you have it. Two hard sayings of our Lord that reveal something of the reason and the result of his first coming. Interestingly, what follows in our text is not more hard sayings, but an indictment and a rebuke of his contemporaries for their failure to be more thoughtful, their failure to be more discerning about spiritual matters in general. Another way of saying this is that having challenged their understanding with regards to two often misunderstood aspects of his coming to earth, he now rebukes them for not being more thoughtful, more discerning about the greater spiritual issues of their own day. Look at verses 54 and 56. Then Jesus turned to the crowd and said, When you see clouds beginning to form in the west, you say, Here comes a shower, and you're right. And when the south wind blows, you say, Today's going to be a scorcher, and it is. You Hypocrites. Would you say, how, how does that fall out of what Jesus just said? Listen to what he says next. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but you can't interpret these present days. You can't interpret the significance of the days in which you're living. Consider with me then Jesus' rebuke of his contemporaries for their failure to discern the greater issues, the spiritual issues. Of their day. An anonymous writer expressed it well in the following words. In fact, I want to go, I want to go back to the 16th chapter of Matthew here. 16th chapter of Matthew, we find this same rebuke that we just heard from Christ. We hear it applied not to the crowds, but to the religious leaders of his day. Here's what he said there. You're good at reading the weather signs in the sky, but you can't read the obvious signs 
of the times. In both of these passages that we've just cited, the signs that went unread and uninterpreted were the messianic signs. They were signs that the one promised long ago, the savior of his people, was even now in front of them in the person of Jesus. Luke adds to the importance of Christ's rebuke by, by the use of the Greek word for time, a word that means crisis. He says, you can't understand that you are living in a season of crisis. This was a crisis moment for the Messiah as he faced the cross. It was a crisis moment for the Jewish people as they were about to experience the wrath of Rome on their capital city. It was a crisis moment for redemptive history of all mankind, and yet they couldn't see it. Worse yet, they wouldn't see it for what it was. And that's why Christ charges them with hypocrisy. That's why he calls them pretenders. They are those who pretend to be wise in spiritual matters and to understand the signs of the times, and yet they feel, fail to see the most obvious of spiritual truths, the presence of the Messiah in their midst. You may remember that it was John the Baptist who had sent messengers to Jesus on an earlier occasion and said, uh, you, you check with Jesus, you ask him if he's the one we've been waiting for or not. Remember what Jesus said? You tell John, the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cured, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. Well, these and more were the same signs that Jesus' contemporaries had observed, and yet for, for all their pride in their ability to read the weather, they couldn't, they wouldn't read the far more compelling signs of God's presence among them in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. In the crowds gathered around him that day, I have no doubt that Jesus could see the faces of men and women who had been present on previous occasions to see him multiply the fish and loaves, cast out demons, raise the dead, they were happy to watch the show and to eat the bread distributed by his disciples, but they couldn't, Jesus said, wouldn't understand the meaning of it all. They were willingly ignorant of the days in which they lived. They were preoccupied with the weather report. If we can bring it into our day, they were preoccupied with the Dow Jones. They were preoccupied preoccupied with the political shenanigans of their day in Springfield or Washington, D.C. But they had neither the time nor the interest to give thoughtful consideration to what God was up to in their day. That brings us to the third and final point on our sermon outline for today. Now, let me be quick to point out that unlike the first two points on your outline, this one comes not by way of exegesis of our text, I said it comes not by way of exegesis of our text, but rather by way of application. So if you want to disagree with me, this would be a good point to disagree with me on, okay? Because my authority now is me and my experience and how I'm understanding the teaching of scriptures here. But I bring it before you as my burden 
and my conviction concerning this text. This is a statement of what I believe Jesus wants us to glean from his teaching in the previous verses. What's that, you say? That Jesus calls upon his followers in every age to give serious, thoughtful, discerning understanding to the spiritual issues of our day. As I studied our text in preparation for this morning's message, I was struck by the realization that I know of no other place in all Scripture where such a strong emphasis is placed on the importance of Christ followers being thoughtful and discerning about the issues of their day. Thoughtful about the hard sayings and teachings of our Lord and discerning about the critical issues of our own times. Now, this isn't an entirely new concern for preachers, okay? Some years ago, Vance Havner, a name known by some of you, Vance Havner drew the church's attention to this issue. He did it by telling the story of, you may recall this, the story of two Native Americans. He called them Indians. Well, we're back to the Cleveland Indians again, aren't we? Are they guardians or Indians or Native Americans? I don't know. At any rate, he told this story about two Native Americans uh, who were watching a lighthouse going up. And on the day of the opening of this lighthouse, they came to see the thing. It was all set up with lights and bells and, 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 and the horn. But the day it was due to open was the foggiest of all foggy days. One Indian turned to the other. He said, light shine, bell ring, horn blow, but fog come in just the same. Havner made the following application. He said, the church has never had more lights shining and bells ringing and horns blowing than we have today. And we've never had more fog. Some years later, Charles Colson would observe, when compared with previous generations of believers, we seem among the most desperate for thoughtful, meaningful faith. Our reason for being is confused, our mission obscured, our very existence in jeopardy. Carl F.H. Henry wrote, I'm quite willing to concede and insist that the church has unnecessarily accommodated a failure of cognitive analysis. That's his way of saying a failure to think rightly. Evangelical churches have gravitated toward the experiential and even the emotional at the expense of the intellectual, that is, at the expense of sound thinking and critical discernment. A couple decades ago, a leading thinker in the evangelical church wrote these words. He said, everyone in the church, not just the leaders, needs to have permission to think. Why? Because people in churches generally are conditioned to assume that somebody up there, that is up front, is doing all the necessary thinking. Yet, when everyone is encouraged to think, their faith comes alive. Instead of mechanical prayer and Bible study, we then have dynamic prayer and study of God's Word. And what are people free to think about? Listen to his answer. They are free to think about God. The beauty of life, 
and particularly about how God might use them as ambassadors to a hurting world. They are free to think about justice, mercy, and the terror of spending an eternity in hell. More than that, they are free to think about how they might make a difference for God in their age. You say, Marty, why are you making such a, such a point of the church's thought life? Because in the absence in the absence of a more thoughtful and discerning faith, we evangelicals have become victims of the same scare tactics and political games that have overtaken our nation as a whole. Does that sound tough? We've seen, or we've come to be seen, as little more than a voting block to be courted by the folks on the left and the folks on the right. And like the religious folk of Jesus' day, many of us, many of us, spend more time seeking to discern what today's weather will be, or which direction the Dow Jones is headed, or who the next governor of our state will be, than where the Spirit of God is leading his church in these admittedly complicated and trying times. Dare I say that what is needed in the evangelical community today is less time listening to the political pundits and more time seeking the Spirit's leading for such a time as this. If ever the followers of Christ needed to be more thoughtful and discerning, it's today. It's in our day. I recently came across a quote by a gentleman named Ben Hanna. I don't know him, so, you know, he may be some heathen. I don't know, but I liked what he had to say. A quote in which he was attempting to describe the thought process of one of his friends. He said, Her mind was like a spoiled child's bed. Soft, comfortable, and constantly being made up by somebody else. Wouldn't, wouldn't harm us if occasionally we were to step back from our busy activities and ask the question, who's making up my mind? CNN? Fox News? NBC? Somebody on the left? Somebody on the right? Somebody in the middle? Fight, fight, fight. Or is our mind being made up by the word of God and prayer? Spirit of God, what an age we live in. I know I'm getting old, and old people always see everything that's going wrong. But Lord, I can't help but feel that we're in difficult, troublesome days as a nation and as a church. We don't want to throw our hands up in the air and say, well, there's nothing we can do. We want to become more thoughtful, more discerning, more available to the Spirit of God to be used by you in these difficult days. Give us hearts and minds to study, to wrestle with the thoughtful stuff of your word and the thoughtful stuff of our own day.
and grant us by your Holy Spirit discernment to live and to do as you would teach us to do. We pray it in Jesus' name.